This is Emma from the Victorian Farmers Federation, and I'm here to have a chat with Andrew and Matt. That even that even rhymes, which that, that's probably one of the best leads into the podcast we've had, Andrew. I think. I think it is. I think, like again, I'm an ideas man, and I think yep. coming to this idea of making the uh, the guest of the intro was another fantastic, fantastic. Idea. It, that nearly sounded like a rap. You could that, you could that um, and just dub over the bit where I say it's Emma in the Victorian Farmers Federation, and just use that as your standard. We might. We might. Like, we're not. We're not very good at. Editing, so that's <laughs> <laughs> probably. But but I suppose Emma was at a gig on Monday, so maybe maybe she was at a rap yeah. gig. She never told Might us who it was. Might have been a bit like that spoken word kind of you know street rap stuff where they do and it all rhymes. Speaking, that was good. Speaking of which, mm-hmm. did you see the news today? This is completely oh. on a tangent before we even. Oh, we've already gone on a whole bit tangent. We haven't even done the six cents going. Uh, but did you see the Easter show in Sydney? What, what, what are the, they using potatoes instead uh, of eggs? No, what the news that's come out about the Easter show in Sydney? No, haven't seen it. No rap music allowed. Actually, really? they have banned rap music at the Easter show in order right. to, in order to curb violence. Oh, okay. Was that a problem? Those... Well, apparently there was a kid stabbed to death last year at the Easter show. Oh, there was too. Yeah, gang gang related violence. Gang related. Right. So they're banning yeah. rap, and it just reminds me of that that song. No wearing of colours. No wearing of colours. No crib signs. Yeah. No bloods and crips. Yeah. It just reminds me of that song, Guns Don't Kill People, Rappers Do. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but, yeah, so so I was going to go to the Easter show, but now that I can't listen to rap music while I'm there, I'm yeah, there's probably no, going no to... I thought you were going to say they've banned livestock coming in because of, you know, foot and mouth disease concerns or something nah, like that. They're more no? concerned about rap music than foot and mouth disease and bar security. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. anyway. Six cents. We've got an important guest on, so we should be yes. on our best we behavior. Should. We should. We've got... Right, six cents. Oh, am I? Oh. I'm already telling you my first answer of six cents. Well, no, 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 oh, no, 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 no. We're gonna, we're gonna, <laughs> like, get it together. Like, give me some instruction here. Help me, help you. Uh, right on. So, six cents. We're gonna fire six questions at you, or six words. You give yeah. us the first thing you think of. Okay. It can be a one word or, or, a, short or a short phrase. Short phrase. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. First thing that comes to your mind. Matt's gonna go first. Okay. Is, it, uh, is there any like um like user discretion eighteen plus fifteen plus parental guidance? No, 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 there's no, there's no. You can, you can, this is an X-rated podcast. Yeah, <laughs> right. you can say you can I'm say what you want. Now with my free association, I didn't know we were going to have this little foray down into some unconscious psychology, but let's go. Labor unions. Oh fuck! I was going to use that one. Um, disingenuous. Black pudding. No thanks. Oh. Crocs. Crocs footwear. Why? Oh dear. <laughs> okay. Gross. Sweaty feet. Poor fashion. <laughs> no need. So many other options. Come on, calm down. Like <laughs> one word. Advocacy in agriculture. Confused. Mm. Agricultural mm. agricultural leadership. Passionate. Social media in agriculture. 
um, preaching to the choir? I think um, I think Emma, Emma listened to the instructions, and she I think that was one of the best um, six cents we've had. Apart from apart from the answers around black pudding and Crocs, you failed those. Oh no, the, ans- the, ans- the answers were pretty bad <laughs> on on black pudding and Crocs, and so she's yeah. clearly. But the delivery was because most people the, either right. either give give a yes no answer oh. or a rambling twenty minutes. Yeah, they go on for too long, yeah. But yours was succinct and and interesting. Some of those answers you gave, I think, which we're going to think people are getting. I think people are getting more trained on it now as well. You know, there's, mm. there's probably somebody out there now doing media classes on how to take on the Ag Watchers podcast. <laughs> well, I actually went on Google this morning just to try and get my bearings, and I, I was like, "Sardonic" is one of the words, so we'll go with that. You used to describe yourselves. Do we? Oh, I, yeah. I must have spelt that wrong. I was going for sarcastic. <laughs> no, you, you, you did. He was just trying to sound intelligent. He went for a different, different description for sarcastic. But anyway, uh, some good answers though there, and um, I think we, the first one there with regards to uh, that I stole from Andrew around. Um, Labor unions, disingenuous was the answer you gave, I think. Could you you want to flesh that out a bit more for us in terms of what you mean by that? Um, I would love to. Um, and I'll just use one quick example. So I was working with a business who have um, the unions firmly, um, I was going to say up their butt, but, I mean, I don't know if that in X-rated, I suppose it's fine. And, yep. and the union goes out to this particular business because it's 12 months of the year Um there's a business, you know, a couple of kilometres down the road that is only packing, you know, their their horticultural produce for four months of the year so the unions don't bother to turn up. Um, or even when I've used seasonal workers, you know, they're supposed to have um, from the Pacific, they're supposed to have union briefings, but I only have five of them and, I'm, you know, my farm's an hour and 45 minutes to, from Melbourne and it's just too far for them to drive. So apparently we're not worried about whether or not Emma exploits her um, workers because that's too far of a, um, a hmm. travel to you know to go and find out and then they charge their members um, and they never have to justify the value to their members and they never have to justify how many members they actually have so they're always up there apparently representing workers but n- never do I hear them you know justify how they're doing it or how many they're doing it for and then beyond that like with this particular business that I was working with I, I engaged with the unions and I said if you represent everybody in in the shed, um, then we can you know talk about that like, like a human resource function, and that would be great. Because in fact, what they did was they were empowering some members of the workforce above the others, mm. and I think that's disingenuous. And, and often the way that they engage, they they want to get stuck in this argument. So when we're talking about Pacific Labor Scheme and <clears throat> the challenges with that, and um, yes, there's some real vulnerabilities of those workers and we have seen exploitation, but the conversation never moves past that. So when we start working on solutions where, you know, here are the employers saying these are the, you know, policy positions that we need to come to. This is what we need to do from a regulatory perspective. And the unions just want to go back to, oh, yeah, but you lock them in shipping containers and just never acknowledge um, improvements or, you know, that common sense or common ground to actually move forward. And it frustrates me no end. Because I, I was I was <clears throat> at the Abares conference recently, Emma, yes. and I was at a presentation or a panel yes. about farm labour, and uh, there was a guy there from I didn't catch his name, um, Stephen Crawford. Oh yeah, let's name him on your podcast. Well, I, I just were, he, were you, he, were, he you there? Were, you, were you there, Emma? Were you there, Emma, as well? I was on the panel. Actually. Oh, oh, <laughs> my memory is terrible because. Um, but Stephen Crawford. 
he, he obviously didn't leave much of an impression on me either. Um, but either, he, either, other, as like other than me, wow, other than you, and uh, <laughs> but he came out with some pretty nonsense on stilts sort of statements. I found myself the whole time holding back, you know, and biting down on my tongue because I've been told I need to be more reserved. There was I, someone, I, there was someone there that didn't hold back from memory, Andrew. Do you recall? Oh, we'll get, exactly we'll, get we'll get we'll get to that in a minute. But okay. um, <laughs> but there was a uh, he made some statements, and I, I was going to see if you you agree. Oh, yeah, yeah, you you'll be able to, no problems. <laughs> but one of the statements he said was, which I thought was nonsense, <laughs> uh, was that we we could didn't need overseas workers. We could fill all <laughs> the jobs in Australia with the workers that are locally. Yeah, that's a load of cobblers. Yeah, it just I mean. So it's okay for their kind of value position to be racist, simply. And that was kind of what I was trying to point out. He was like, oh, the unions will always stand for having Australian workers. We've got them. What's the problem we're trying to solve here? 75% of the workforce in agriculture are Australians. So, sorry, do you need it to be 100? Like, where's the, what's the number that you're looking for? And then, of course, he mixed that conversation in with, oh, no, but um, migrant workers, there's an increased reliance upon them in recent years uh, for the purpose of being able to exploit them. And it's like, this is what really annoyed me. Um, bro, like my family came here in 1938 to pick the fruit that you didn't want to pick, the Australians didn't want to pick then. Um, am I less Australian? Like, are we two generations down the track and you're annoyed that I now have a farm and own a business and employ people too? Like, why do we have to have Australian workers? Well, and I, other- I, I understand that, Emma, as a, as a first-generation immigrant. Yeah, well, I mean, you're just stealing Australian jobs. Like, they could be Andrew, an- Andrew came across as a backpacker. Andrew came I did across not as a come backpacker across as a backpacker. I wish I came across as a backpacker, but I came across as a, as a worker. But, you know, I understand that. But, but he did sound a bit one nation-y when he was talking. Yeah, right. And but I thought... You never call that out, like, because apparently they're on the left side of politics. It's just this old narrative that's been set up. It's not fit for purpose in modern Australia. Or probably isn't, isn't, but, but, isn't, that, isn't that just scratching the surface? I remember one time Andrew and I worked in a place establishment years ago and I made the comment that I felt in some instances, in some areas, and in, in regards to some topics, that Australians kind of were a bit racist, right? And I, I nearly got hauled over the coals uh, that, there and then, didn't I, by saying, by suggesting that Australia sometimes might be a bit racist um, oh, yeah. by, the, by, by, the, uh, by the boss at the time. Do you remember that, Andrew? I do remember that. That was quite an interesting debate. I just stood at the sides, throwing, throwing little hand grenades in every now and then. But I do, I, I do remember, though, and this is another tangent. I remember when I first came to Australia, I'd been here about maybe a month for two months, and I went to an industry event. In, in Western Australia, and I was, you know, with a group of a group of guys stood around having a beer, and uh, there was a guy there, and he was talking about, oh, we need to stop bringing in so many fucking immigrants, you know, we need to get less immigrants, and I'm just standing there, this ginger bearded, pale faced Scottish person, and I sort of said, well, like immigrants like me, I said, oh no, not you, Andrew, you're you're not a proper immigrant. <laughs> yeah. And I think I, I think he meant maybe Anglo's were okay, but other ones weren't. But like this this union thing of saying we need Australian workers, you know, to fill those jobs. There's no such thing. Like if we look at back in the history of Australia for the last since Federation, apart from about four or five years, we've had net positive migration into Australia. Mm. So most jobs over the last hundred years have been filled by an immigrant, or at yeah. least second generation immigrant. 
even just now, like if you go to Perth, 27% of Perth's population was born in Britain. Yeah. So we're a country that relies on immigration. You know, some of the best analysts, as an example, some of the best, some of the best analysts, podcast presenters, some of the best podcast presenters from our, our first generation immigrants, first generation mm. farmer in Australia. First, geez, I should get an Australia Order of Australia medal. Are you some of the best, some of the best leaders, lead, some of the best leaders of industry in agriculture, sometimes first or second generation Australians. Mm. I, I don't disagree with that. It's interesting because I think. Like even now, even if you look at the advocacy space, uh, you know, and everyone's like, don't don't play the woman card, don't play the race card, don't play any card. But I look around and I think perhaps um, my communication style is very much a product of growing up in a kind of Italian extended family where, you know, everything sounds like an argument. And so I'm kind of happy to have robust conversations and I'm like, everyone's like, oh, you don't have to be so direct and aggressive. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm not. That's I'm, just normal. <laughs> I'm not even I'm not, what or, or calm down. Like, don't be so angry. I'm like, I'm not angry. This is just. And I get exactly the same thing, Em. I think I think maybe Italians and Scottish people are maybe descended from the same stock. Um, I'm Des- not sure. Despite if, despite the Romans not being able to defeat Scotland, but, yeah, I reckon I reckon if that because is the case, I, Andrew, I get accused of being aggressive when we have a heated debate, and I think it's the accent. Well, there's there's plenty of redheads in Bologna, Emma, up north. So maybe this maybe that's where the Scots came. Maybe it wasn't a Viking invasion from Scotland. Well, the, Ro- the, the, well, the redheaded. Well, technically, you know, the, the Romans didn't invade Scotland. No, because <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I don't know if they didn't invade. They didn't invade because they didn't want to. I think they just looked at the population there and said, "We'll just build a wall and keep them out." The wall was to keep the Scots out, not to not to kind of say that's where they stopped. Well, I'm from far further south than that, so. You know that where the real proper Italians come from. Actually. So, yeah, because yeah, yeah. yeah. you, you say about not using a woman card, yeah. Oh yeah. No, well, I al- I always use the Scottish card. Uh, right. Because, <laughs> like, on a podcast, our biggest audience is <laughs> is the people that listen watch Outlander. People that watch Outlander. <laughs> people of a certain demographic, so, age and demographic. Fifty to sixty-year-old women who are bored of their husbands. <laughs> I suppose, given that there's no visual, they can imagine whatever they like, right? Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. I was quite, <laughs> I was quite taken by Outlander as well, but then it shit got seriously whack at some point. I was like, no, I, I, I couldn't I, watch it after a certain scene in the first Yeah, season. yeah, there was, there was, yeah, it, got, it went too far for me. As um handsome as the man might might be he when they started to travel through time I, I, it really i was like this has gone too far i was okay with the rocks but then after that it, it yeah lost me no, i was i was taken back when there was a certain sexual scene which surprised me and uh well, i can't watch that one anymore you're very delicate he's a very delicate he's a very delicate man your yeah. delicate sensibilities no yeah deep. that's it that's oh. it it's funny what you said about you growing up and that because my wife's european and they are similar in the sense that you know, they um they have robust discussion. It sounds like arguments, but then also, I grew up with a, a family that were um, the father was Sicilian and the mum was Calabrese, and oh, they wow. would argue they would argue at length mm. about how you call a watermelon in it, you know, because they're different dialects or something like that, right? And it'd be a twenty minute robust discussion, and it would look for, for an outsider it would look like they're having a massive big blue, but it's just no, it's it's watermelons this. Speaking of of words, we had had an argument in our previous job about the use of one word that went on for about a week. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, you're correct. I'm still not 100% sure if that is a word, but the, the word I'll, out with. Out with. Every Scottish person would argue to the. So Emma's face. Emma's face tells me already that she's not familiar with the word out with either. Like no one else that speaks English. I live out with Scotland currently. Oh, that's a, that's not English, but that's okay. <laughs> this is a problem when you when when you when you when English isn't your first language. It's it's a challenge. Yeah, sure. That's exactly what the problem is. We're having too many tangents. We should get back on to the to the advocacy. To, to la- no, to labour. So, what is what is mm. the solution? Um, we we need what's the solution? We need more people. Is like simply, and it has to because it filters up and down, right? So yes, and I hate the fact that we talk about skilled positions versus unskilled position because I would suggest anything that you're kind of doing in agriculture takes a certain skill level, um, but you're not enabling. Your like so the the guy who is now um, the right hand man on our farm just started as a collie picker like and has kind of worked his way up and now knows how to do all of the farm functions. Um, so you've actually got to give people the opportunity to move up. Um, the reliance now on different skills that we didn't know that we needed a few years ago. Like we've got shortages from the, the whole way across. So whether it's skilled or unskilled need more people, need better um, migration um, like frameworks or settings to actually enable it to happen because this reliance on the Pacific, we've essentially taken all of their people now and they kind of need them back. And we're obviously having this conversation in the context of all of the geopolitical um, argy-bargy that's going on and, and we need to be strategic about that. It's not just about getting people into pick fruit and vegetables or milk cows or drive headers. There's a larger conversation happening. And I feel like we don't, I think we're either everybody's stupid or the general population. And when I say everybody, I mean politicians through to the general population, or there's a whole thing going on that is not shared as part of a kind of community conversation as to where we're heading heading and what we're doing. And I think that that's problematic. Like that lack of leadership or rallying people around a vision, we would maybe be more understanding and be able to come up with different solutions um, I think the point was made even in that ABARES panel that, oh, you know, we don't talk about the ag visa now just because Labor don't like it. Nobody wants to get Labor offside, so we better not ask for it. It's like, but if it's the right answer, we're going to stop talking about it just because there's a Labor government in place now. Like, that's just stupid. And I think we do um, partisan politics kind hmm. of actually. Do you, think, do you think, Emma, we should be looking at multiple options in terms of, like you said about those specific workers which come in almost on a temporary basis and then go back home again, right? But should we be looking at those types of, you know, kind of policy decisions as well as bringing in people with a view that they're going to get permanent residency based on on that? Like, is, is it, we should be having multiple approaches here. It's not just one type of yeah. policy or, or decision that fits everything. Yeah, we need, you know, multiple tools in the toolbox, I think. And it was problematic when we're talking about one thing, which is short-term, you know, labour kind of for harvest. Harvest, harvest type stuff, yeah. So that is different from your longer-term roles. But, again, it's not our job to be migration experts, but we don't seem to be able to progress the conversation very far with this government. And, I mean, not to... My frustration with the previous government is that they said all of this stuff but then didn't actually get anything done. Like there was no major reform anywhere, so we were kind of sitting ducks waiting for an ag visa to, you know, not get its feet off the ground. Um, and, yeah, long-term migration options um, to that turn into permanent residency are a positive thing too to the point we just made about 
Australia being a migrant nation and the value that migrants bring and this notion that, oh, they still Australian jobs. No, we have to change that to the narrative of they actually underpin Australian jobs. If you don't have the person in the pack house, well, then you don't need a farm manager and you don't need a person to drive the truck and you don't need a person to stack the shelves and so on and so forth. So this whole a whole supply chain is actually underpinned by a lot of that migration and we've just got such a kind of negative attitude towards it. Well, uh, from that perspective, and Andrew alluded to the fact that we've had positive net migration for most of the time over the last century or so, and a lot Which of that... Really all, on, all, it's only it, time we didn't have it was Second World War and, and COVID. COVID. And, and that, that underlying growth in population actually drives the broader economic growth as well, right? Across, not just ag, across all sectors, right? So it's, it's, it's crucial to the country. We're such a small... Also, it's also brought a lot of multicultural aspects, you know, positive. You look, you look at Katanning, yeah? Katanning... Yeah? Is one of the most multicultural places in Australia. Or Dandenong. Or Dandenong. <laughs> but, you know, and that brings about other positives to the community as well. So, yeah, yeah. Like, I'm, like, I'm, like I'm, people... turning, I'm turning into a lefty like you, Matt. I know you are. You're, you're starting to turn all soft and green and left. Um, uh, so, we're going to talk about even, gonna... even bringing in items like haggis and black pudding into speaking, speaking co- of, culinary delights. Speaking of which, normally what we do, Emma, is we use, we're a bit of a, we're a team of tricksters here, yeah? So we use the sixth sense as a as a, as a warm up sort of thing. We also use it as a way to sort of get conversation flowing, and think about things that we can talk about. Right. And so I'm that's... bring black pudding into the country, please. Like that's not you can bring it in conceptually, but don't physically bring it in. Well, I want. I want so I want. Have to, you want, have so... you eaten black pudding before? This, this, yeah, this, this is what actually, I wanted to ask. I wanted to ask yeah. more detail. Like why why were you so opposed to black pudding? Like you're Italian. You have your own. This is like we're, we're so going down another tangent here. Um, a Hoiberg tangent, we call it, I'm Emma. Really like, do I really want to like open this can of worms? It'll eventually, I'll end up in some sort of trouble down the track. Um, so actually, we just never really ate it because of like religiously, kind of ish. Like we're not full on, but it says of the blood you shall not eat, and so it was just never something that was served in my house. I did try it overseas. I just didn't particularly like it. Um, but that's just all okay. <laughs> there's a there's a Sicilian dessert that uses Dol- blood. Dolce Sagunacci. He's made a mess of that one. Mess of that one. Yeah. There's a Sicilian dessert that has blood and chocolate powder in it and it makes like a, you know, like a, a mousse. lovely. Yeah, like a mousse. Yeah, I've seen it. I haven't eaten that. And I just don't, yeah. I mean, I'm not that I, I'm not like big on offal, but then there's, you know, it's just kind of like you. T- do, do, do you think it's awful? Um, that's really shocking. <laughs> really, can you go back to saying something in Sicilian? That outlander. I just really did some things there. I'm a. I'm more of a Spanish speaker, anyway. Right. Well, can't wait for that to be wound into the podcast at some point. Hola, señorita. <laughs> um, Okay. okay just- we have a whole new group of uh, listeners after that attempt oh, yeah. at Spanish now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, wa- I watched. I, I, I watched a lot of Narcos to to learn <laughs> to learn Spanish when I went to South America, yeah. uh, which nearly got me arrested for asking for two kilos of coke. But um, <laughs> I was looking for the toilet. But anyway, <laughs> to, to do the lines in the toilet. That's not very, <laughs> not very hygienic. That's, okay. that's, that, that's why I didn't <laughs> sleep for four <laughs> weeks. <laughs> So, and Crocs, what's the issue with Crocs? How, how can you say they're unfashionable? I, like, I just, 
don't have to, there's, okay, we can be practical with fashion, that's fine, but they're just so ugly. Like you just look ridiculous in them. You can make that facial expression. I, I take it that you're getting about in Crocs all of the time. Not all the time. And you know what? You should, he has to sleep. He, has, he doesn't sleep in them. He doesn't sleep in them, but other than that. Like I just, like the air holes. I don't know. I find them grimy and gross. Is it because they remind you too much of a Dutch clog? Like it's like a modern clog? Is it yeah, just a, some kind of European, you know, historic European rivalries between the Italians and the Dutch? The Italians are known for being fashionable, so I'll take Emma's advice on this. Yeah, you can get yourself some Dolce and Gabbana ones. Maybe I'll come to the party. He's got. Has he got ones that are? He's got ones that are lined with sheep fur for his winter winter Crocs. You know, yes, like a, like a croc, croc moccasin type looking thing. There, I can see them from here. Made out of crocodile fur. Nice. They're good. They're comfy. And wait, start, wait, start, wait, wait, wait. right. We're deviating uh, again. Deviating. Get back yeah. to it. We're supposed to be yeah. professional podcasters. That's it. The yeah. same six words. Oh, you obviously don't use the same six words. No. Anyway. No. We always we always use oh, black pudding. Black pudding and sometimes Crocs or haggis would have been the other one. What about haggis? Oh yeah, no, no. Oh no. Okay. All right, let's move on to advocacy. Advocacy. That was easy to say, Matt, wasn't it? I was was trying to be funny and say advocacy, but I've fumbled my way through it. it, Yeah, that I'm very cute, and it's been used before. Sorry, you didn't. No, no, no. No, no, it's been not by me, obviously, because I can hardly put it get it out there. But um, what what about we'd spoken a bit about? um, I I suppose ag leadership, and I think you used the phrase passionate. Are you describing can yourself? I, can, I, can I actually add something into this before we go? Yeah. yeah. Emma, just so you know, like you're obviously president of VFF. Yeah. I want to know that you're also in similar company. And that one of us one of us was also a president. Oh, okay. Yep. What are you laughing at, Matt? Yeah, okay now. I was the inaugural president of WA Farmers Young Farmers Organization. How long ago? <laughs> Ten years ago. 1970. Ten years ago. Ten years ago this year because they're having a 10-year anniversary and they invited me to come and speak. About... They let a migrant. Oh, they invited you to come and speak and then worked out you had an accident. And then No, no, no. I was a president. They've invited me to come back this year and speak at the 10-year anniversary. So, uh, obviously, how long were you the president for? Two years. Well done. That's great. Oh, only, only, they only stopped me from being the president because I moved to Victoria. And... Oh, okay. They tried their best to keep me. They were like, oh, you can do it distance, you know, because you're so good. At being the president. Maybe you can give me some tips. Well, didn't you Didn't you help set that organisation up so therefore you're the inaugural? Or you, were you still voted in or did you just set it up and say, hey, everyone, I'm the president? Unanimous. Unanimous. It was like a North Korean election. Asked himself. <laughs> and he totally agreed. Standing there in front of 50 people with a baseball bat, <laughs> then make your what? choice, boys and girls. Yeah, actually, it's been put to me that um, if it was put to me by yesterday by one of the staff members at the VFF that he misses my baseball bat and that I've turned nice. <laughs> well, I miss the bat too. It's it's <laughs> like just... easier just to swing indiscriminately than um, actually have to do um, consultative, um, all-encompassing vulnerability-based leadership is quite a challenge. Well, there's nothing wrong so, with a bit of, you know, dictatorship. 
benevolent, benevolent, benevolent dictatorship. dictatorship. Yeah. Correct, correct. Well, so, you know, so we laugh about that, but it's actually it, it's it's in fact quite true because if you look around the world, where because I have a real problem that we don't have a food and agriculture strategy, and you look around the world where they've got you know fifty to one hundred year um, food security plans. And they're generally in the places where it's a dictatorship because you yeah, can controlled act- controlled economy type stuff. Yep. Mm-hmm. Five year, ten year plans, and consistency consistency of policy through decades because you know because they can because there's no other opposition change. So, and so change t- their t- mind. T- tell us, Emma, you've been the VFF president for three years, four years, two years and a bit. Why did you decide to do it? Um, it actually it just kind of happened, not by accident. Like that sounds like. That, that actually sounds disingenuous because it's not like I didn't throw my hat in the ring, um, but I didn't mean to. It's not like I aspired to be part of these organisations. I just was asked. Um, I did the Nuffield Scholarship and that kind of gave me a little bit of exposure to industry and then was asked to join the Vegetable Growers of Victoria um, and then the VFF tapped me on the shoulder and said, come and be part of our horticulture group and then I just kept taking the opportunities that were in front of me. So there was a kind of a quick trajectory to the top of the organisation, but I think that it's um, I think it's because we probably know that we need to do things differently, um, despite there being a bit of argument around how how it should be done differently or how to get there. But I think that I, I guess I looked and sounded and um, yeah, I was just different and probably represented a bit of change. And the members wanted it and they wanted it twice, so they voted me back in, thankfully, because that was a bit of a journey. But um, yeah. There's always people that disagree with what you're doing, but I do think that we've got to change. And I think it was like I just looked like change, and that made sense. What do you think you, of the general advocacy industry? Because I know, like, like I've been. It's interesting for me because I've been here for 13 years in Australia, and I've been on the sidelines of a lot of like. I've seen what VFF do. I've seen what WAF do. PGA, and New South Wales farmers, and there's been a lot of change in that time. But what what do you think the biggest sort of biggest thing that you've learned from that and and the biggest challenge that advocacy has got? Um, I think our biggest challenge is how to coordinate. When we we think about um, (laughs) how much money is spent from an operational perspective in these agriculture organisations, and there's more than 270 of them. So the Australian Farm Institute's done Mm. a report about advocacy and it's actually really quite interesting. There's those 270 plus organisations and if you just look at the kind of like the the National Farmers Federation family of organisations, we're talking about an operating budget per annum of over $100 million. So I think if we just looked at it from that perspective and said, do we get the outcomes that we expect or that we're after in regards to the resources financially? And then if you think about all of these different organisations and everybody's got a handful of staff or quite a lot of staff each, there is so much overlapping um, of issues and who's the spokesperson and when we're coming out that it becomes kind of like this wall of noise that I think is really, we kind of take it for granted and say, oh, yeah, it makes sense that you've got this group and that group and the other group and whatever else. But for the general population and um, politicians, it, it's it's almost incomprehensible that there are this many organisations and they all kind of claim to be doing similar or the same things. So we haven't each worked out you know, what our individual lanes are and to swim in it. And we're awfully good at like looking up while we're doing breaststroke across a few lanes and going, that's not how you do backstroke. So, you know what, I'm going to show you how to do a bit of backstroke over here. And and I think that that lack of coordination is problematic 
in regards to getting outcomes. And it's also using farmers' money. Like at the end of the day, we're all going back to farmers and saying, hey, can you be members of this organisation or capitalising on um, you know, supply chain businesses and saying, hey, you've got to sponsor us and partner with us. Um, and the thing that probably gets my goat the most and nothing to do with the goat representation um, is that you often have the same farmers who are on the panels of multiple organisations. So, in fact, they're going back to the same grassroots base to just like it's just so many meetings and so much conversation and a lot of it is inward focused instead of being outwardly focused. Because I think if you said to anybody, how would you go about doing advocacy for Australian agriculture with $100 million? Is that enough money per year? Like the answer should be, oh, yeah, that's that's plenty of resource. But the way that we split the pie up um, means that everybody then claims that they're running off the whiff of an oily rag. So, 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 so in advocacy in Australia, you're talking $100 million a year. At least, at, at least. And, and that is to cover livestock, honey, yeah. dairy. Can't, can't forget the bees. Otherwise, people yeah, will yeah. show. We've got a lot of listeners who are in the bee industry. Horticulture. Mm-hmm. Grains, oil seeds, pulses, what all else? Of them. Have we got? All of them. So then, then you look at, say, Animals Australia. Yeah. Animals Australia has got about $20 million a year in just an in income alone. And no members. And no members, but also focused on one goal. Like yeah. they only have one thing that they need to look at. Whereas that money, that $100 million is spread across, like we say, 10, 20 different industries, the tea industry alpacas and cashmere don't forget wool yeah wool Mm. emus cotton cotton rice rice sugar sugar bananas oh yeah bananas so huge amount of industries there but animals australia have got 20 million a year that they can use just against livestock industries and and abolish and really their modus operandi is to end the um the animal agriculture industry so it's focused um, and and i and they're also quite sophisticated because there's quite clearly a much bigger play here so after we saw the footage of the co2 stunning of pigs last week um and you know the agenda is let's take animals out of the food supply chain altogether um the one of the i think it was the treasurer of the animal justice party who is now no longer oh um, yeah 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 so this now launched he's like oh look at how we've done this cell-based pork and come and well, he wants five million dollars worth of seed funding to do that so it's like and that i'm not even arguing that point right like that's commercial you everybody's got the capacity commercially to compete with each other and if you get the sales well good luck to you but to overlay it with the attack and the well the, the ideological attack on animal um, agriculture, we're kind of missing the point here because that guy's about to launch a business, and the damage to our industry is the marketing for for his business. Well, it's interesting because going back to that pig one, do we think that that has really impacted the industry? Like, I, I just wonder if people are a bit like blasé now about those type of videos, like the general public, and it, it didn't get much traction. Like, it's only oh. been, it's only been on ABC. I doubt pig sales have been affected at all and people have forgotten yeah. about it by now yeah i did notice i did notice a couple of days after that coles have been running you know that that pre-prepared pork product they have that you can just pick up you know oh um, yeah yeah Those, they've been running that ad you can never get of, you, can, you can never get them because they're all wow, sold out by the time you get there mm. well pork is absolutely delicious and that's exactly the point i think 
it's interesting because we say how much of an impact does it have? Sometimes I think the way that um, the agricultural advocacy organisations we give it we give it fuel. Yeah, exactly. Because we focus on it, and we we focus on those consumers and think that they're going to have an impact on everybody else. And then you know, let's flash back to a pandemic where there was no meat on the shelves, and the only thing left was the you know tofurkey and the whatever in the cabinet there. So, and it might be a growing market segment, and that's fine. Like, eat what you want. Like nobody's nobody's disagreeing with that. I just think it's really dangerous when, and I mean, it's what we're doing with literally every kind of policy consideration we make we're just trundling after ideology and that's it's like ideology can't be the the way to make decisions um because it's we're turning a whole bunch of things that we say is science into kind of a religion to follow and to make all of our our policy decisions as a nation by whether it's climate action or you know animal industries these things have become fashionable to be ideological about and it leaves a whole bunch of people scared to say anything because you kind of, as soon as you say, hang on a minute, what's with the targets? What are we talking about in regards to climate action? Oh, you're a flat earther and you're a climate denier and you want to rape and pillage the earth. You know, I, I, and the animal justice people who own cats, it's like, what are you talking about? Like the hypocrisy is what kills me. Um, I think it's important that consumers, if they want to know, have the capacity to, with complete transparency, understand where the food comes from and how it got there. Like, that's fair enough. If you don't feel comfortable eating a pig because you found out that it had to die before you ate it, well, that's that's okay. Like, eat some lentils. We can grow that for the food. We had a discussion a few weeks ago, Matt, over dinner with a friend. Mm. And she doesn't eat any, any new meat. <laughs> that was a peculiar one, but yeah. So she eats, yeah. she eats fish, chicken, lamb, <laughs> but she won't eat beef. Because our duck, yeah, because she's she never, hasn't because she hasn't eaten it before, mm-hmm. so she's just okay. doesn't so want. She, so she's, right. she's not adding new meats into her diet, and she doesn't eat beef because she had pet pet cows yeah. as a child, mm-hmm. but she still okay. eats meat, but just not any new meat. So I don't That's... know what I don't know what kind of diet that is. It's an, it's an interesting point you made though about the animal animal liver types with their cat pet cats because the, when you talk about something like a pig farm and an intensive sector like chickens or pigs they often say oh the animals aren't allowed to be in their natural environment displaying their natural behaviors but yet if you're going to be a responsible pet cat owner you've got to have them pretty much in a caged environment and not allowing them to kill mercilessly well, let, like they let, do let, let's be <laughs> honest no humans are in the natural environment I think that that's a really great point. It's like, oh, everything's climate controlled and we feed them, you know, grain out of a little box and they don't have much space to move around and they're not doing whatever. And it's like, well, that's how we're living when we're in high rises with our air conditioning on. And Technically, technically homeless people are the closest to the natural environment. <laughs> well, technically, well, you know what? I think you raise a really good point there because um, you go to the dog park when we're talking about animal welfare, <clears throat> when I'm in Melbourne occasionally and you're walking around the dog park and you watch people who, I mean, one that kills me is Kelpies or Border Collies mm. that round up the kids in the park and they're just obviously not allowed to do what they are bred to do. But we don't have that conversation from a, and, you know, and dogs that are all on anti-anxiety pills because they're all, and, you know, like this is like some problem that we've got as a society, all of our stressed out dogs. But actually homeless people's dogs, they're always just the happiest dogs. Just mm. couldn't be happier. So that's, you know. Good on them. <laughs> I, I, I always think that there's animal rights. Like I, I had this discussion with someone the other day, non-agricultural person, 
and I was talking about that we should like, and this might sound bad, but a human life is worth more than a cat's life or a dog's life. We're going to get we're going to get complaints now. We're going to get complaints from all the cat cat lovers. So I mean, it's, but, it's but, like, but but like no. we've got so many homeless people that like you go down Flanders Flanders Street Station in Melbourne, and it's full of homeless people. We can't help those people, but we want to spend money on banning animal agriculture. Well, the best was at the last state, Victorian state election, when we were trying to get Medicare for pets. Never mind that we've got a crumbling healthcare system in Victoria. We should get Medicare for pets. Like taxes should pay for everybody to have an unhappy dog that's on antidepressants in a house because it's not allowed to run around. That's obviously, you know, but it gets it gets the traction and it gets the media and it's actually really very frustrating. Um, I went on my Nuffield trip, I actually spent some time in Israel on a kibbutz and they were doing the whole, like, let's all tip in our money and we all live together in this, you know, big, happy kibbutz commune situation. And I just, the capitalist in me just couldn't accept it. And so I'm just just saying, hang on a minute. So you're a doctor and you bring in, you know, whatever, $300,000 a year and then somebody else doesn't work at all and everybody gets the same and, and, and there's no problems with that. Like you don't have any problems in this little society because of that. And he he understood the guy who was running the kibbutz at that, you know, he was the elected leader for the week or the month or whatever. And he said, I can see you're really struggling with this. And I said, yeah, I am. And he said, well, that, let me let me let you in on a little secret. We, they own Netafim, the irrigation um, uh, technology. Hmm. And he said, we're really rich. Our kibbutz is really rich. And he said, and the rich can afford their ideology. And that's hmm. That's, like, a, that's that's a that's a yeah, very good point it is uh, like that i think that was probably the key thing on my nuffield that i learned and i just th- th- put that lens over everything it's like the climate lens like we're rich enough that we can afford this ideological pursuit it's only when you've got a full belly that you'll have a conversation about animal welfare or animal rights and whether or not you should eat an animal uh, you well, know it's, it's so- interesting because the same is like the same in any common society like when i went to north korea there was you know, government workers. You know the 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 apartheid, whatever they call them, apartheid chicks. What do you call no, them? no, yeah, yeah, yeah. parachecks or something like that. Yeah, yeah. apartheid's a South African yeah, yeah, model yeah. of yeah. They uh, we'll get onto that. Um, but they were driving around a Mercedes, yeah. and they all had iPhones and whatnot. The general population wasn't allowed a phone. Yeah. So there is always a have and have nots. There's no such thing as communism. It doesn't really work. Well, I think that that's it, that's really interesting because I think what we and the hypocrisy in the animal rights or the animal liberation kind of move is that what they're saying is that we are not better than the animals, right? Like we're no better than them. And to your point about you know a human life for you is more important than a cat or a dog life. Um, their argument is no, no, we're all the same except for the fact that they are then imposing their ideological beliefs on these animals. So apparently people who see the the footage of the pigs but still want to eat bacon, you're some kind of evil person who has no compassion and you can't possibly understand, you know, having you obviously don't have a good heart. I, I, bet, but, a, I bet a cat doesn't see itself as an equal to a mouse. Exactly. <laughs> and I don't know, are we supposed to, a shark doesn't feel guilty when it eats a seal. And even in regards to humane dispatch, and I, like, I'm all for that. It should be as, and we do have the capacity of humans to say, how can we make this as quick and as painless and respect the life of the animal and be thankful that it's, you know, going to die and then we get meat. Um, 
the animals, you know, there was one um, David Attenborough um, documentary of some wolves that were taking down a buffalo and they exhausted this thing over a period of nine hours and then they start eating it once it's collapsed. Well, it's, still, it's still alive. Yeah. Like, what are we... So what are we talking about now? So now we're humans who are better than animals because we've got this capacity to have compassion, but that it just, the whole argument is under, undermined for me. Uh, you know, ideologically, it doesn't make sense. I don't think that people can be made to feel guilty to eat meat, but yes, as an industry, because we've got the capacity and the rich can afford their ideology, we should make it, um, you know, we should respect the lives of animals as much as, as possible. That's why, we, that, that's, we... why, that's why I can't afford an ideology because I'm just a poor <laughs> analyst. Are we compassionate enough to feed our cats and dogs vegetarian meals? I wonder. And that's um, the other yeah. thing. Like, so you, so your animal, uh, Chris Delfors had originally he had a picture up on his Facebook of him with a cat, and it's like, so you're either feeding your cat meat, which makes you a hypocrite, or you're not feeding your cat meat, which, which makes you animal yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so let's go um, back. Let's go back to look, advocacy. I'll, yeah, yeah. I wanted to actually. We we spoke about agricultural leadership, which it flows into that advocacy part. And you mentioned you said passionate about you know agricultural leadership. Leadership, and I was wondering. I'm, I'm assuming that's describing yourself, but then potentially also other agricultural leaders you've met along your journey. Um, and I don't just I don't discount so, so, that. So, so yeah, here we go. Here's a better question. Tell well, us okay. who's the best agricultural no. leader, <laughs> apart from you. Give give us five. No, you can't put it on the spot yeah. like that. <laughs> Excluding us. You can add us if you want. Fine. Oh. Um, Who's impressed you the most? This is a really tricky one. The first person that came to my mind was Jim Gelch, who was the CEO of Nuffield um, when I received a scholarship. And just the way he um, enables the growth in other people and that program that he he built these leadership skills I mean he built the program realistically in Australia to what it was and just you know really honoring the leaders leadership skills in others and he also would say that he, he his notion was that rising up leaders was about leaders at all different levels so there's going to be people who are leaders in their own local community there are people who will be leaders at a kind of state or a national level there are people who will end up being leaders even at a global level and that it's about um, enabling um, and and building a person for where they are so that's one person. Can we do this intermittently throughout? Yeah, the yeah. yeah. I, I think that's a bit unfair. What I was going to if you, if you want to give us some, yeah, like you can just give us fishing, give, give compliments. <laughs> is this, this guy? I mean, I, I think he's an analyst. I don't actually know what they do for a living. <laughs> he's, pro he's, pro he's probably Irish as well. He's, no, I think he's, he's got a, an accent like um, the guy off Outlander, and it just yeah, it really does it for me. Yeah. <laughs> I guess, so, well, that, so, that's that's going to be the sound bite for the, yeah, yeah, the show. That's it, that's it, yeah, that's it. Just on loop. On loop. Cut, that'd be great. But you, you mentioned the passion, right? And I don't discount. There's plenty of people across agri that are passionate, even within their own right. But the leaders that are passionate, and I just wonder, from your experiences, do you think there's some that are legitimately passionate about the sector they represent, or are there also some you come across where there's maybe some level of um, yeah, internal motivation to improve their own lot or to maybe move across into politics down the track or and you might see this in the union movement too where you've got people that mm. are there not necessarily for a particular reason that's passionate about their, their their industry or their sector but they're passionate about their own self-interest do you do you think there's a few of those flirting around or is agriculture immune to that kind of stuff no when um when i said passionate i actually meant just about everyone like there's no question that people are passionate about it i think everybody starts because they see um, the impacts of 
outside influences on their farm business and it's something that they genuinely resonate, you know, resonates with them. And a lot of people start on a single issue. So for me, it was actually about the labour stuff. Um, and that's kind of where I started or where, you know, why I started doing advocacy and then it kind of leads into other things. Um, so I think for most people it starts with an issue. It is really easy once you get into this environment to not become self-serving, but it's it's difficult um, and maybe I'll come back to that. But, yes, there is this there is a trajectory where some people find themselves then um, becoming involved in politics. But I don't think that that's a bad thing. It was one of the things that was... Um, put out against me during the last election campaign. Oh, Emma's, you know, Emma wants to be a politician and that's what she's doing the thing for. Firstly, that's actually, that wasn't factually correct. Um, and then secondly, would that be a bad thing? Like, shouldn't we have people who understand agriculture um, wanting to be in other positions of leadership within the community? So I don't see it as a bad thing. Of course, if anybody's self-serving, whatever it is that they're whatever the motivation is that they're trying to serve, whether it's financial, whether they get, first, you know, the first opportunities on their farms because they're the first to come across something, um, you know, self-serving leadership is just a problem in and of itself. But I think we're complete pricks to leaders in this country. So we are stifling um, leadership because of the way that we treat people and how, how personal it becomes. And when you can start off with such pure intentions and before you know it, you go, like, and even like leading into the um, last election at the VFF, I was at the point where I was saying, why am I, why am I doing this? Like, I know why I started, but at this point in time, a lot of it becomes so internally focused or working on the organisation itself rather than doing the advocacy, which is what I was completely passionate about. And then it becomes a cost to my business because there's been no real growth in my farm business um, it's at a point in time in my life where I'm probably supposed to be most focused on my business. Um, yeah, there, there is a real personal cost to, to doing leadership and it's because of the narrative by, which, you know, like that tall poppy syndrome and then, the, you know, turns into a, a spiral where people won't actually stand up because they don't, you know, they can't be bothered with the personal cost. And some yeah, how, the- how many good candidates are you discouraging because of the yep. way the current leaders are treated? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and some of the stuff that comes at me, I'm just like, Oh, it, it's it like totally shocks me. Some of the the, the rumors. Oh, I heard a rumor, or like you've got members of parliament who are ringing up staff at the VFF to find out if I'm dating such and such, and I'm like, what? Really? Wow. Okay. You know, it, that stuff there is hmm. off-putting, and I think there's a lot of people who just say, but "I could be." Do you, do you think that question would have come up if you were Jimmy Germano? If I was like- Jimmy. If you're Jimmy Germano, do you think a politician you? would be I don't know any Italians yeah. named Jimmy, but anyway. Um, I don't like, know. Like, do you think that, like, like who, who gives some monkeys who anyone's dating? But do you think that's more because you're... I, I can't understand. Did he just speak English then, Matt? Like, you might have to translate for I don't know what he has. So something to do with a monkey? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm saying, I'm saying, like, you, you, you had politicians asking that question about who you're dating, yeah? Yeah. But do you think that would have had that question if you were a male? I don't. Probably not. I don't think so. But I mean, I don't know. Like, it's not like we don't bitch about men as well. We do. The best part of it was that it was an untrue rumour that was 12, 12 months old. And I was like, oh, God, no wonder your politics are so shit. You know, your finger's so far off the pulse. It's an untrue rumour from a year ago. But that sort of stuff, like it is off-putting. And, and at one point, you know, I there was a threat made about me um you know, that we're going to take this piece of information also untrue or a half-truth to the media if I didn't withdraw from the VFF presidency. And my reaction, you know, everybody does fight, flight or freeze. Like I just 
thankfully was was born with a fight kind of thing. Like, are you gonna are you gonna pull out? And I was like, no, I'm absolutely not gonna pull out. And I hung up the phone. But then spent the rest of the weekend kind of chastising myself and saying, well, you don't need this. And I at one point, like my family said. Oh, Em, like you're so unhappy. You're not focused on the farm business anymore. You're so stressed out. You've put on 10 kilos. What are you doing? And it's like, what am I doing? And and you lose the that passion that I was talking about originally for for you know wanting to represent farmers and try and get good outcomes because we're terrible in regards to the way that we do leadership. Like these newspapers that are just bitchy gossip rags about what's happening in, you know, amongst the who's who of agriculture. And it's like, talk about um you know, a storm in the teacup or thinking that we're so much more important than what we actually are. And it's that's the stuff that stops us getting outcomes. And it's not just in agriculture, it's everywhere. And if, you know, it's no different even in state or federal politics, that cost of person, you know, the personal cost of leadership, I think. So, so how, how do we improve agriculture advocacy and leadership in Australia? Um, the other thing I was thinking about is do some of these organisations exist just to be the platform for a person like me or a Fiona Simpson or anybody else to be able to kind of create influence. And yes, there's these policy setting um, frameworks that we go through to ensure that we've fact checked things. How do you, where's the balance between thought leadership and then true democratic representation? Because sometimes you've got to be moving the dial forward and the way that democracy is set up in some of these organisations, it means you're only hearing from a particular pocket of people. It's not like it's compulsory to vote on all of the issues that we're talking about at a farmers' federation. Um, How do we improve? I think it's about having those robust and open conversations with each other where we don't tear down an individual person because of an idea that they present. So, I mean, I, I don't know how many of your listeners will know the story about that time that Emma Germano wrote a letter to the Australian dairy farmers saying we need to consider the membership structure here because it's all just costing too much money and we need to be thinking about the outcomes and we can't financially support you at this level anymore. We need to have a reform conversation. And then instead of that being at no point has there been a, a comfortable conversation around a table, it just all plays out in the media. And then you've got people like throwing pot shots and you're trying to do this and you, you, you. And it's like, it's not about Emma. Like, it, it, because, while you're focused on me, you're sidetracked from the issue. Because at the moment you've got like VFF, you've got, mm-hmm. and WAF as well. Probably all of the organisations got a limited pot of money, which is probably, let's be honest, declining mm-hmm. year on yeah. year. And, but you're also paying money out to NFF. Yeah. So the all the state farming organisations pay a membership to the NFF and it's based on their own membership turnover. So we're one of the biggest contributors to the NFF based on our membership turnover. But the bit that it's like a pyramid scheme, let's and you don't get any Tupperware along the way. And maybe maybe the answer to how do we improve is that everybody gets some Tupperware and that would maybe um, you know, be a, a another benefit of, of membership. But we pay, for example, our dairy group. Well, it's still the VFF because there's only one VFF. There's not multiple, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's not different organisations within the NFF, uh, VFF or the NFF. They're different membership model. But we pay the peak dairy body and the peak grain body and so on and so forth. And then they also pay a membership to the NFF. So we're actually doing this like pass the money around. And, of course, it, it all has collection fees and it all has... Mm. Uh, you know, Administration cost. and costs, yeah. And we've all got, like I look at it and I say... We can still do, and I shouldn't talk about dairy because I'm already in enough trouble with that, but I could literally pick well, any of this, this, So it's a commodity X. So just get it's it right. To so get it right in my head, 
you VFF collect money from members. Yeah. Only the members. It's not you don't have a levy like in South Australia. So this is where it's really confusing because at the VFF currently, and this is we're trying to reform the membership model, but it, it's difficult because you're not doing it in a vacuum. So we can't just say, how's it best for the VFF? Because, you know, we've got an agreement as to collecting a dairy levy. So we do collect a dairy levy, but it's voluntary. So it's not a compulsory levy. It's not every producer mm -hmm. paying it. So we collect a levy and then a percent, a, a portion of that is to be passed on to ADF. Now, what we are actually doing from that, and I, I we were going to talk about Commodity X, but in some of the commodities, so Commodity X, we're collecting fees from about, or levies from about 25%, 25 to 30% of the ex-farmers in Victoria. Um, and but, but we're paying based on the entire production of all the ex-farmers, not ah. just members. That's really confusing. But anyway, I think everybody knows. Well, maybe so, everybody so, 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 but, but to get in my head, you're collecting money from members, whether it's a, a voluntary membership fee or a voluntary levy. You're then using that to obviously advocate on behalf of Victorian farmers. But then you're also sending up money to NFF. So what percentage would that be of your overall income? 20%? Um, of our over no, that's just too difficult to do it that way. It's essentially we pay uh, just over $200,000 to the NFF. So that's to advocate on national issues. Yep, and that's and that's really supposed to be the advocacy on the cross commodity issues. So mm -hmm. your, you know, workforce, um, your planning, environment, climate, that sort of stuff, all of that kind of cross commodity stuff. And then we also pay the peak bodies. So we also pay dairy, sheep, cattle, um, grains, horticulture. I'm sure I'm missing a couple, but it, again, like it's this big spider web. It's not really like it's a pyramid and a spider web at the same time, but the money gets passed around. And for me, you can still do great national dairy policy or grains policy or whatever. Livestock. But, na but national green policy, and this is going to offend Western Australian, South Australian, Queensland News. National dairy policy is really Victorian dairy policy. Well, this is the point. So we're 65-ish percent mm. of the milk pool. Um, and so for me, I like I think about it and go, well, if we're no longer part of a national dairy group, then we've actually just fractured national dairy advocacy. But surely you can do great advocacy without having to have an entire organisation and all the cost of administration of hmm. an entire organisation there, right? And the thing is that everybody will say, <laughs> we're the ones that should go. Oh, it's not us. It, but we've all got to look at ourselves and say, are we creating value? And also to the point about, you know, lanes and swimming before, what is the lane that we're supposed to be swimming in? So there is no other peak agricultural organisation in Victoria that does state-based policy on cross-commodity issues. So if we don't do that well, then no one's doing that. Yeah. But all of the other stuff is covered in multiple different areas. And so, yes, we have our commodity groups within the VFF and they then, you know, feed into the national um, commodity groups. And that's great. Like we need that representation as well. There are commodity-specific issues. But, again, like we, there's just so much crossover. So there ends up being holes because nobody picks it up. And at the same time being this, you know, overlapping of the same issues. And then a lot of the time I, I feel like we probably don't have the time and the financial resource in, and, and therefore staffing and whatever to go really deep in creating policy. So it's very, um, not that it's superficial, like and some of the policy stuff is really great, but where we see a government that's not doing that policy work or we see a public service now that has become more political mm. than the 
members of the government themselves, we might have to come up with the answer. So sometimes we say, oh, we need an agriculture visa, but maybe we have to go deeper than that and actually say this is exactly what the visa should look like and we actually get a migration specialist to write that piece, but that all costs money and then we all say we don't have enough money. And I'm like, well, we just said that we've passed $100 million around and switched it this way. Do you, think, do you think the industry is becoming a little bit risk averse and that people are, oh, trying, yeah. people are trying to protect your, their roles rather than doing what's right? Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a difference between leadership and having a title, absolutely. And I think that, again, to that that, that comment around the personal cost, um, it becomes problematic. People don't want to stand up and do leadership because you get, you know, you get cut down and it's we end up creating a, an environment where only certain personality types will put their hands up and say they want to do leadership and that's to the detriment of everybody. And I don't think, I mean, there's a lot of, obviously we're talking about agriculture here. I don't think that that's just it's not a line. It's not a line. It's yeah, across, it's yeah. That's across the community. I, I asked, hmm. the, we, we, we had a chat with Fiona Simpson a while oh. back. Yeah, it was a while. A long time. I was doing COVID. Hmm. And one of the questions I asked, is a question I'm always curious about. <clears throat> Like there's no such thing as agriculture, really, in a way, in that agriculture is made up of a huge number of different industries with different views on stuff, which yeah. in many cases are competitive views. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, you know, Matt and I were, our, you wouldn't think it because we're so young, but we're retired, <laughs> retired pig farmers. And at Did that you point- you give up. Sorry, keep going. And, but the reality is that- there's competing interests. So like a pig farmer or a feedlotter uh, during a drought wants grain imports. Yep. But the grains industry doesn't want that because they want to maintain high prices. So how do you, how does an industry get around? Uh, and, also, and also they've got biosecurity concerns. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's called NTAs, non-tariff. No, barriers. NTAs, non-tariff yeah. barriers. Mm. Um, like the car industry. But... How 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 do you represent somebody like like you you've got pigs like you've got is it Tim? Yep. Tim Kingman. Tim That's David Wright. Yep. Okay, but you got you got you got those guys, but then you've also got guys like the famous film actor Ryan Milgate. Ryan Milgate. Yep. yep. He's only a part-time. Grand he's only part-time he's, because he's he's, he's, he's a Hollywood filming. celebrity. Yeah. yeah. And very so, good on it. He's very good when he does a um a quick video. Very good. Yeah, well, he's well. When we saw him acting alongside, uh, what was his name? Eric Banner. Eric Banner. Eric Banner. In, yeah. in the dry, we thought it was hard to tell the difference. I, I couldn't pick who was Eric and who was Ryan for a short while there, given the the outward appearance. But well, well, I think apparently the word on the street is that Eric Banner came up to him for acting tips. Really? So yeah. yeah. Well, I heard Eric Banner wanted him in the background of the shot so that people couldn't couldn't kind of see his his natural charm and beauty. Um, you know, didn't well, want to distract from the main star. Well, apparently he's going to be the stunt double for Chris Hemsworth in a new film. <laughs> so, so Ryan's doing really well. And, and if agriculture doesn't work out for him, you know. If there is back. a backup plan. Yeah. There's a backup plan. And everyone in agriculture has to have a backup plan. Uh, what was my question again? You're going to say about uh, how, how, competing so how, interests between so how, grain farmers and livestock farmers. Yeah. Um, I think that's where you have to allow the autonomy um of the different commodities but that's why i think it's important we're back to the lanes right like every and and we're going back to that pig issue a number of times but i think it was a really great example whose job was it to come out and speak about it whose job was it to create transparency for consumers so was it 
um, APL's job to come out and speak about it? Was it AMIC's job, the meat processors, you know, because it was actually in the processing facility where the, the issue was occurring um was it the vf and this is where i was stuck and and it was probably fortunate that the media didn't kind of like jump to this because you end up in this position where you you end up in fights with your friends and fights with your friends is kind of the majority of the fights that you have because we have a whole issue around from a state farming perspective that is across all of the commodity groups and it's not about just pigs is about the trespass issue so the biosecurity linked to the trespass and whatever else so if i how am I if I get um, if I get asked by the media to do you know to talk to the issue that the outs people outside of agriculture don't know who's supposed to be talking about it don't understand this complicated you know ecosystem that we have going on they just go well how come the president of the Victorian Farmers Federation doesn't want to talk about the pig issue that was on the thing and I'm like because I'm trying to think about what my jurisdiction is my jurisdiction is to talk about the trespass because that's obviously the advocacy that we've been doing. Uh-huh. I can't have a conversation about the trespass without having a conversation about what I've seen beforehand. And so it actually creates a lot of, well, should anybody talk about it or should no one talk about it? And the same example with the foot and mouth disease stuff. We knew that that was kind of happening and I'm going, oh, they should do a campaign, you know, at the airports and that we should do this and we should do that. And um, But that's not my job. Like, it's not my job to do that. It's a national issue. I don't want to step on NFF's toes. I don't want to step on the meat industry's toes. In the meantime, NFF don't want to step on anybody's toes. And there was this massive hole for a period of time. And I've got like one producer at the VFF who's contacting me, showing me photos of his sister in Bali and walking past cows in the resort and whatever. And he's like, Emma, you have to do something. And people will look at the VFF and say, where's the value of the VFF if they're not doing anything? So I just put a video up on Twitter and then that turned you know, that kind of, it like, it's it certainly wasn't the most viewed video, but it kind of it almost started the conversation. And then all of a sudden there were all of these videos on Twitter. Then we ran that same story. We did a webinar and I was like, oh, are we stepping on anybody's toes to do the first webinar? But in the meantime, like the pressure from our producers was getting to the, the point. VF, where, like, that's oh, the one, uh, I don't like to blow smoke up people's on, on the podcast, but VFF did do a lot of good webinars last year. Yeah. I think I think I was on two of them, but anyway. Yes, I think um, <laughs> we need to. But but that's not why you did a good job. But you were you were really quick on the Ukraine war. I think you did a webinar on that within a couple of days. Yeah, yeah, the supply chain stuff, and then the supply, supply chain, chain yeah. stuff, and then the the foot mal- We weren't on the foot mal- disease, even though I'm trained in foot mal- disease. But or was I? I, I think, think we were. I think we were. Your um, your clog on or your clog off? Croc. Sorry. That sounded that could have been edited out quite badly there. This is one take, so that's fine. Um, so, so yeah, yeah, well, and it's interesting because people say, "Oh, no one's interested," and we only get seven people turn up to a branch meeting, and they don't open the emails. And how do we engage? And how do we make sure that we're doing comms and engagement right? And are our producers engaging? And it's like they don't want to talk to you about every last issue every five minutes like people have lives and businesses and they don't they but they will engage when it is something important and I think the foot and mouth disease like that webinar that we did the interest was unbelievable and we've never had I literally had to hit up one of our sponsors to pay for our um, increased zoom capacity to have the you know thousand plus people on that webinar and it was quite incredible it was like wow so when it's an issue that farmers that matter and that resonates and that's you know n- now like a now issue 
then farmers absolutely turn up and we take it for granted. Plus there's, you know, the 270 organisations all saying, hey, do you want to come to our meeting? Hey, will you open our email and our whatever else? And we're just, I think we saturate it and it actually decreases the engagement rather than increases it. So do you think it's uh, like, let's look at the last couple of years of COVID. We've had this move from working from home and company organisations, well, I was going to say companies, organisations, you are a company effectively, do you think that's the move forward is to sort of centralize things, get things more online so that you can get more engagement, especially when you think about like, I'm a millennial, technically, by one year, by one year. Um, so do you think, what is the solution to get young people into and involved and get them effectively? Because I hear the argument all the time. I'm not going to join VFF, WAF, whatever else, because they don't do anything. Yeah. Um, why, why, why aren't they doing this? Like, well, because I, I actually replied to somebody on Twitter yesterday because he said, oh, the lobby groups should be employing a lawyer in, what was it? I can't remember. Uh, anyway, they should be employing a team of lawyers to fight this live export thing on sheep. And I just replied, that costs money. Yeah. You know, and, and everyone, everyone's got ideas for what lobby groups should do, but a lot of those ideas are coming from people who are not effectively contributing to so i absolutely somehow like i'm a bit of a bleeding heart and i can love things very easily and now i absolutely love the vff but i didn't get involved with the vff because it resonated with me i got involved with the the vff because i thought there's this incredible resource and platform that has to be fit for purpose for my generation of farmers and beyond and there's things that need to change there. So I actually got involved more because I respect the legacy that's been left and that all the work that's been done to set it up, but actually we need to modernise and change. And I think most of the organisations are in this same boat mm. that they need to think about how to be relevant to the younger generation. Um, so that's kind of step one. Step two is always trying to demonstrate value. And I think, I mean, maybe that whole thing needs to be flipped on its head and it's like you actually just simply should be a member. Like, it is your responsibility to be a member um, and maybe it's difficult if you don't understand what the outcomes are um, but it's interesting because I think young people are fully um, political, politically aware and having these conversations amongst themselves on farms with their you know farm mates and colleagues and whatever else it's just like do they want to engage in an organization where you go to a town hall style meeting and you you know sit around arguing about the same shit every week until 11 o'clock at night no they don't want to engage like that I think there has to be like a balance between utilizing online tools because it does I think for quick bits of information like that foot and mouth disease webinar that we did really effective way to reach as many people as possible with that information had we trundled around the state it you know you wouldn't have got we wouldn't have gotten the same level of engagement and the amount of resourcing that and also would have been a lot more expensive to run as well it's more expensive um but interestingly, I think it must have been last year. I, yeah, last year I went out to um, Long Run On College and it, I was speaking to the first and second year students and I said to them, oh, you know, we're actually, we've just set climate change policy. Like, do you realise that the policy that's being set is going to impact you guys when you end up back out on farms? And if you're not there for that conversation, then there is going to be things that happen that you're you're not part of, you, what, how you think, how you feel, what you want is not going to be part of the conversation. And I said, put your hand up if you would attend an online meeting. And they were like, eh. put your hand up if you'd come to a meeting at the pub. And they all put their hand up. So I think that we can't um, deny that this mm. has to be a community. 
And there are very um, intangible but valuable benefits of meeting in person and just socialising with each other. And those conversations that happen when you're having a beer compared to, you know, an online Zoom meeting where people don't feel quite as comfortable. So it has to be a mix. But I think it's really important to know, like, what is it? What's the problem we're trying to solve? What is it that we're trying to achieve? And then you'll work out the mode to do it. Because if it's just to disseminate information, a webinar is well and good. But if it's to kind of start addressing this, what was it, you know, 30% of farmers have contemplated or attempted suicide, you know, over the last few years, you're not fixing that over a webinar. Like that's where you need the kind of wrap their arms around each other and, and actually have that sense of community. And a little bit of the COVID stuff, like it's valuable, um, like that, that kind of change in the way that we do business is valuable, but um, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater because there's nothing, yeah, there's nothing quite like that human interaction. And I think we still, like, again, not just in agriculture, but across the um, community, we need that. And we've, Emma, we've, we Emma, found that last year we went to the VFF conference in mm. Ballarat. Mm. Oh, yeah. And, and, one of the things, and one of the things that I, I thought was interesting about it was, I'm not going to go over it again, Matt, but they had the, the, the nurse there. Oh, yeah, the health check, yeah, yeah. Doing the health yeah. check. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I think there was only... Lined up six times for one, didn't you? <laughs> well, Matt and I did do it. Turns out I'm 27, metaphysically, uh-huh. whereas Matt is a couple of years older than his real age. Oh, so I think there was only three people did it. No, I've, it's it's got really? me back onto a got me back onto a health kick though, Andrew. Yeah. So it's been beneficial. I'm so trying to reduce you, that you, metabolic we, age back to more normal levels for me. So so we got a bit competitive with it. Zach the mm. wheel was on it, um, and uh, he he got an age which was considerably higher than his age. <laughs> let's um, not let's not let's but, not. But, no, but, I wanted to ask I wanted to ask Emma regarding this advocacy stuff, and you've mentioned a few times <laughs> about the administration, the costs of. You know, doing business and how difficult it is across all these different organisations to get some focus and direction. I'm hearing through the lines there, and we've seen it a bit with with some organisations, the likes of say GPA and grain growers, how they're both kind of serving the same community, but and you had this wool battle produce, about wool producers yep. and sheep producers. Correct, right? So and alpacas producers. Yep. So is there is there a, a time now that we should be really seriously looking at it? And consolidating, like in your view, do, do we need to kind of tidy up the house, so to speak, so well, that we can well, look at look as an example from the commercial industry, yeah, mm. yeah, and grains industry, huge amount of consolidation in the grains industry because they can't make money. Yeah, so you, you consolidate. So why should it be any different? Anyway, I wasn't yeah, answering for I, you, Emma. I absolutely think that there has to be consolidation. No question about that. Um, if everybody part the egos and the logos, I think we would get there a lot quicker. I think that the danger or or the fear is that we don't, you know, particularly from the NFF, like the language they're using around it is, oh, we're not trying to create our own fiefdom and this is not the NFF taking over the world and don't worry about that, like trying to allay that fear. But I think if you go so far to allaying the fear, you actually stop being able to paint the vision of the future of what it should look like. And the reality is, We don't have to mind our P's and Q's if there are organisations that are running that are essentially wasting farmers' money because that's apparently why we all put our hand up. We all put our hand up to do this job to represent farmers. And if you can't hand on heart say, this is the right decision for farmers, then you're making the wrong decision or you're, you're following the wrong motivation. And we always focus on the vocal minority And the vocal minority in agricultural advocacy is actually only a a small portion of the 25%, you know, near abouts of farmers that are actually members of something. Mm. So 
we have to connect with the 75% that aren't members of anything because otherwise it's just this dwindling base. The other thing is that we've now got all these um, commercial organisations that are saying, well, we can do advocacy ourselves and we don't need to turn up to 3 billion different meetings to do it. And so we're seeing that corporate style farm, even though like, you know, what's a corporate farm, what's a family farm and the line's kind of all a bit arbitrary. But we're seeing those corporate style farming businesses starting to do their own advocacy and feel like they don't fit into this space. And the danger is those middle-sized family farms are the ones that are contracting at the fastest rate. We've got a kind of explosion of the hobby farms and, you know, this growing consolidation at the other end of the scale. And that's not where any of our organisations are really focused. So we're actually focusing on not wanting to change because we're scared of what change looks like for the fastest shrinking group of farmers in regards to how they do advocacy. And that that is really problematic. You know, if you look at the Australian Fresh Produce um, Alliance, uh, is that what they're called? Yeah, Australian oh, yeah, Fresh yeah. They're doing their own advocacy. They're doing great horticultural advocacy. And it's 12 businesses sitting around a table who are directly influencing how they want that organisation to operate. It's got a much smaller operating budget, but it gets those outcomes because there's, you know, there's no links between or there's no missing links in the chain between who it is that you're advocating for and who's doing the advocacy. And that's going to be a threat to all of the agricultural organisations anyway. So the other, the other one as well is like, Emma, when you're in, you're in Canberra all the time uh, or regularly, there, there's also an influx in the last three or four years of lobbyists who are from taking almost a North American style lobbying mm. approach. You know, mm. we know that there's yeah industry couple, industry lobbyists you know from from the larger end of the corporate from, side from right? larger you know the, the supply chain sort of partners. So I won't, mm. I won't name names, uh, mm. but there's definitely government what do they call them government relationship manager teams mm. who are out there you know telling a very nice story about how they're going to treat farmers well and blah 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 yeah. but that is another element and they've got buckets of money, like they, can, of money. They, they can sponsor every single event under the sunshine right. mm. I mean, yeah the I amount think- of sponsorship the amount of sponsorship some are doing and making the others green with envy you could say andrew <laughs> mm. um i i it's interesting because i look you think about the hundred million dollars that i've you know of operating budget I wonder if there was just one person doing Australian, uh, you know, farm advocacy and had a hundred million dollars to make in donations, what the outcomes would look like. And I mean, that's I'm being flippant, but it's a it's an interesting conversation to have. A lot of our organisations don't pay, um, you know, don't make donations to campaigns and whatever else. And I'm not saying it's right to or wrong to, but we don't have a strategic conversation as to whether or not we would be getting better outcomes. So if you're competing with, you know, the the union that's making hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of donations uh, versus, you know, the agricultural bodies that I think, you know, there was a piece recently that spoke about, you know, you know, maybe up to a hundred thousand dollars. It's a difference in influence. So how do we go about creating influence? And we don't have that strategic conversation. So for all of the organizations that are out there, we don't say what's the, the, the political engagement strategy for now because it changes depending on who's in government and who are the leaders of different organisations. It has to kind of fit. It has to be a bit organic, but we're not having that strategic conversation. So I think that there's a lot of threats to the, you know, all of these different organisations from multiple fronts and we hmm. just simply should be okay to talk about them. What what strikes me is that, yeah, you, you kind of get into trouble as soon as you start mentioning names and and considering, you know, maybe these two organisations should merge or whatever else. 
um, and it becomes personal again. So we're kind of back to this kind of culture of how we go about doing advocacy and leadership, and and that's probably the conversation well, we're really having. Like, I'm, I'm going to do a bit navel-gazing here, uh, as I uh-huh. want to do. Just for but, something different. Just for something different, you know. But what about voluntary advocacy? Because, like, I think I'm a, you see a lot of this, what is it called? Citizen journalism, that kind of stuff, yeah? Or citizen journalism. But what yeah. about, like, I guess to an extent, like, we, we are commercial market analysts, but we also provide a lot of data out there that's pro bono mm-hmm. on various subjects from foot and mouth disease to live export to GM crops to everything that is then sometimes used by organizations for the advocacy purposes, which we do pretty much free of charge because we quite like it. What about things like that? And you've got also like a lot of a lot of individuals who might not be a member of any organization yep. who are getting approached by politicians and yep. getting taken to Canberra and wherever. Yeah, all the media. Yeah, all the media. speech to the media. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Have so, they got a, have, but what? How does that work or or not work when you've got these people who are to an extent talking about the industry, but who are not aligned to anyone? Yeah, I mean, it's just the reality. And I'm probably, when I first came into the role, I, I was like, everybody's going to shut up. Like, we've got to have unity and it's going to be one voice. And, like, everybody's got to be on message and we've got to shut down all of these crazies that are doing all of this, you know, stuff that becomes a sideshow and it detracts from. And it's just like, it's just, there's no, that's back to our original point about it's not a dictatorship. It doesn't work that way. So I think we've always got to be aware of the reality of the world and I think that that now anyone can jump on social media and create something that goes viral or you can have some young person who's doing you know put up a TikTok video that gets you know hundreds of thousands of views and pings globally and that can create so much more influence in a moment than what all of us do I I mean it's again it's kind of going to be this ecosystem and it's been put to me that it's got to be a mosaic of voices I think it's really important that an organisation comes back to what its purpose is. So I, um, the foot and mouth disease stuff, another good example was there was a group of farmers that wanted to have a rally and I was like, no, oh, no, no. no in Colac. In Col- 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 wish I wasn't going to talk about where. Uh, and I was like, no, 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 like that's not cool because you're going to have members of parliament there and then it's going to become political and then we can't be seen to be there. And then everyone comes out and says, Emma, you can't shut down what the individual branches want to do and that's not how it works and and I was like, oh, my God, I just want to be a purist about it and just, like, have the one message and everybody reads the one briefing note and we all say the same thing and surely that's going to get a better outcome. What I have probably maybe a bit of maturity into my role I've worked out is it is really important that you don't try and shut down those voices because you'll expend so much energy trying to shut down other voices when, in fact, I can actually go into a meeting with the minister and say, you've got this noise over here and and here's the common sense, you know, here's maybe the middle of the road, here's a face-saving option, here's here's how we negotiate our way through that. So it actually still, that pressure still becomes, it is still pressure and I think it's still valuable. Um, again, like leadership around a particular vision, I think you've got to create the vision and then just accept that people will kind of contribute to that however is best for them so you can't shut it down but we have to be more mindful of it Um, and to the point about the footage of the co2 stunning with the pigs one pig farmer who was not aligned to any of the organizations ended up 30 has 30 pigs well i don't know how many pigs he has but his pigs 
Looked like a pretty good pig hotel to me. Oh, was. no, that was a different farmer. I thought you were oh, talking sorry. about there was okay. another farmer that came out that's, you know, yeah. that was a small scale operator. That one okay. farmer was a bigger, bigger operator. Yeah. And that's a really good example. So you've got the small scale farmer that might have a commercial benefit in speaking about like this particular thing should be shut down. Versus, and, and, you know, if, if we're looking at it from a lens of food security and making sure that we've got a supply chain that works, we can't just have one voice. And if we do, if we present like that, well, of course, we can argue amongst ourselves. Politicians will choose the answer that they want. But I was actually talking about the original footage where there was one farmer mm. there who mm. ended up speaking on behalf of the entire pig industry. So it's almost like whatever the position of the the formal organisation is becomes a moot point. And he did a fantastic job. I was like, I'm so happy that that man is there because the way he reacted reacted to the whole thing and, you know, what he said, I think it humanised the fact that there is a farmer there and that they we do care and whatever else. And so one person, despite all of that ecosystem, can stand up and do the job for everybody in any case. There was, one, I, there was one other guy who was, who was in the media talking about it as well, Matt. Some some oh, retired yeah. some some retired pig farmer was asked for his views on it. Yeah, that was that was a couple of days after the event. Because and be, that, that person, I think, was approached because, like you said before, him, and there was, was a bit was of a objective. vacuum. There was a bit of a vacuum initially because no one probably knew who was going to step forward in a in a, from an industry perspective, and and therefore there was no comment for a day or so where there should have been. Um, and then and, yeah. and they they actually asked to speak to me, but. I was unavailable, so they spoke to you instead, Matt. I was going to say they actually asked to speak to you and then they didn't, couldn't understand it. Couldn't understand. <laughs> Emma, that's going to be, out of this whole podcast, if, if the journalists are listening to this, there's going to be a comment made. You know, next time you go for the next election, it's going to be Emma Germano, <laughs> racist against Scottish people. <laughs> And doesn't yes. like black pudding. And, doesn't and like you can black see, pudding. and you can see now, you can see now that we're probably coming to a natural wind-up here because we're getting a little <laughs> bit silly. So, what what would be the last message to from one president to another? <laughs> I mean, I, I'm now one president to one former president. Well, uh-huh. I thought you were about to bestow some really, uh, you know, some key wisdom there. Um, Upon me, well, I'm, I'm more worried about getting impeached, like another president. <laughs> well, I mean, it could still happen to me yet. Um, what's my advice? That's a really good question. To, to the industry. Uh, to the industry, um, that you actually should be a member. You know what? Like, despite everything that I've said, you should be a member because throwing rocks from the outside doesn't get anyone anywhere. Um, you should be a member so that you can change things from within, and it and despite the shortcomings if we weren't there I think if all of these organizations weren't there and there is I think there is the quiet drive in the background um, for continuous improvement and the conversations have started um, I think people have to be a member and stop asking what value do I get out of it but see your responsibility to be part of it because you should yeah you should absolutely be part of it agriculture does need a voice and we don't just need a voice for the benefit of farmers. I actually think that we are a common sense voice for the benefit of the whole community because if generally all the shit that we're asking for or the things that we push for are actually more beneficial to the rest of the community than what it is for us farmers on our own individual property. And I just think about it all the time when I'm talking about food security and I got reamed for saying that we could sleepwalk into famine in this country 
Um, and everyone was like, oh, that's hyperbole and the panic button and you're just trying to be emotive and whatever else. And I'm like, well, no one's been able to convince me yet that we have a food plan and that the government and that the community understands the value of having a um, local food industry and agriculture industry. Um, whatever I ask for is actually more for the person who's in the city of Melbourne because when all shit hits the fan, I have got potatoes for days on my farm. I will be eating really great you know, lamb meat forever. We're going to forage for dandelions and milk thistles like the good, you know, third generation mm -hmm. peasants that we are. And I'm not going to have an issue with food security. I've just got to make sure that people can't jump over the gate and take the food if that's where we ever got to. So when Australian farmers do advocacy, it's actually for Australian people and uh, we all have to be involved in it. So as much as things aren't perfect, too bad, get involved um, and, you know, make your voice heard on the inside. Have you ever considered a second? This is I like to give an idea to our right. guests. You know, some of them have been taken up, some haven't. Have you ever thought about most? Creating... Most haven't. All of them haven't. Um, have you ever considered a an additional tier of membership? Yes, we're considering lots of tiers, but I, I'm, I'm sure you. I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's many tiers inside the VFF and other advocacy the majority organizations. Majority of them are me. Yeah. But have you ever considered like a like a tier from non-agricultural producers? We have. We actually have it kind of sitting there. There's about five members in it currently, like a friends. I think we've called it the Friends of Agriculture or Friends yeah, of Farming. Yeah. Um, and yes, that's something that the VFF wants to expand in the future. We think it's really important that you know to the point where the community has to be supporting agriculture. I mean, I just about went on a rant then about transmission lines and how we have to do all of this public good and mm. it's just it for fun and that, you know, we don't have businesses or, you know, mouths to feed ourselves. Um, yes, we've considered it. We will expand on it, but we actually have to get our own, we have to get our tears right first and then we can actually do that fun stuff. And that's why I just hate internal arguments. I use the expression, um, you know, we're sitting around on the beach arguing about what bikini we're wearing and there's a tsunami coming. I can't wait that we all settle on pink G-string bikini. That's going to be awesome for all of us. Well, Matt, Matt has seen me in my pink Speedos, so oh. it's, a sight, it's a sight to be seen, Emma. I is it anything like Outlander? That's the real. Uh, yeah, no, it's it's, uh, it's similar, similar. It's leather. Some, yeah, in, in that sense, images that burn into your mind, and you you know you don't want to repeat. There are aspects that are similar. Yes, I mean that's what millennials do. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's we have to get that internal. We've got to stop that internal noise so that we can start doing more of the outward focus, and that's that's when we'll start seeing more results. Um, and more creation of influence. There you go. Well, look, it's been it's been excellent having you on, it's been, Emma. It's been, a, it's been a long podcast, longer than normal. It has. And I think... Well, and, and, and one, interesting, one the... I was nervous to come on here, right? I was like, oh, God, what are we going to talk about? That was never going to be in a briefing note to me, was it? No. But, but, no, I but think it's, it's one of these things where we sort of say, well, people always ask us, how long are we going to talk for? And we're always like, mm, I don't know, like as long as it lasts. And uh, yeah, it was really interesting. How long it lasts? I think I think it's a it's a um it's a credit to the, the podcast. Really, is made by fabulous guests, and you've certainly been I think one of those. I, I think um, speaking for myself, I think Andrew's in the same boat. I'd, I'd imagine that um you know your passion and your and your willingness to speak openly and frankly is is really um, commendable. So it's good to have you on. 
Um, I think at some stage we might even have you back because I reckon there's more stuff we could cover, but we're just getting too long in the podcast now. Got too sidetracked. All right, next time there's a banger of an issue, we'll, we'll jump on again. And I think it's it's one of these interesting ones that people don't believe us when we say it's unscripted. Mm. Oh, you couldn't have scripted this shit. <laughs> we're, get, we're getting lots of good sound bites out of him yeah, here. Yeah. For, we, yeah. so. We're going to grab some of those. I'm going to have to work out how to edit a podcast so I can actually pull these sunbouts out. The one that said that the accent does it for her and you yeah. can't script his shit. That definitely. That's, that's going on my Tinder profile. You, you know what? In about 12 months or two years' time, Andrew, there'll be a rumour about that comment that I made that'll finally get back to <laughs> And it'll be half correct, half incorrect, but we will hear, I guarantee you, we will hear that at the beginning of the future. Well, I'm going to start that rumour just now. <laughs> and I'll chime in. We'll see if we can get some um, get some support around that one. Well, I get. I sometimes get um, a little bit... Uh, you know, kind of sideways glances when I when I do the sign off, but I'm, I'm probably going to run with it anyway. It was great to have you on, Emma, and um, we'll see you when you got nothing on. <laughs> you will. Arrivederci. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, oh. oh, don't do that to me right at the end. Oh, that's going to give me good vibes for days. <laughs> right, oh.